Hello, thank you for visiting the podcast of the Vineyard Church in Campbellsville, Kentucky. If you haven't already, feel free to visit our audio archive at vineyardcampbellsville.org or subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. And now here is this week's message. Hey, podcasters, this is Adam Russell. I'm the pastor here at the Vineyard, and we have a special announcement for you this week. On October the 9th, we will be celebrating 20 years as a church. And to do so, we're going to have one big celebration gathering at Campbellsville University at 1030 a.m. in the Student Athletic Center. So if you have ever been a part of the Vineyard, uh, we would love to have you here. If this has ever been your home church, if this has ever been where you were spiritually fed and had friends, we would love for you to be a part of this. Even if you live halfway across the country, we'd love for you to be here. So October the 9th. 10.30 a.m., one big celebration at Campbellsville University. We're going to have food trucks following so we can have lunch together. Should be a really great time. I hope you can come. All right, now on to this week's message. All right. Hi. Hello. How's everybody? So good to see you all. Uh, my name's Ray, and uh, Pastor Adam is uh, suffering through really difficult duty in uh, Maine, uh, tough duty to go to Maine as the fall is beginning. I'm sure it's beautiful there. Uh, doing two things. He was doing some work with the Vineyard Music Group. Uh, and then he's also doing work with the Vineyard USA, the, our national organization. Adam's actually on the National Leadership Board. And they have a meeting that either starts today or tonight or tomorrow. And so he'll be doing that. Um, and uh, so he's a gift not only to our local congregation, uh, but he's a gift to the 700 or so Vineyard churches around the country. So that's where he is. Uh, but he did start a, um, he started a series last week uh, that was called uh, Four Things I Wish Jesus Hadn't Said. There it is, right? And uh, this is because uh, we, we're mad at Jesus for the way he talks to us. And because we're angry at him, then we're, we're going to use this time to complain. So how many churches do you go to where people are going to complain at the Lord of the universe? No, that's not what this is about. Uh, This is a sneaky way of looking at the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, And uh, part of what Jesus, uh, or part of what um, Adam said about the Sermon on the Mount is that if Jesus isn't sanding off the rough edges, the corners uh, of our lives, uh, then pretty clearly we're not actually hearing or understanding uh, what he says. Let me give you an everyday real world example. If you had a chance to play golf with a PGA tour professional, oh, and by the way, Campbellsville has one of those, uh, J.B. Holmes, who went to Taylor County High School and during his high school years was a member of this very congregation. Um, uh, You know, if you had a chance to golf with a PGA tour professional, you would actually expect him to say, you know, maybe you ought to, you know, turn your hips a little more change your feet or your hands or something. And you wouldn't be angry at him for suggesting improvements to your game. You'd say the guy's a tour pro, right? And uh, by the way, John just got named to um, the Ryder Cup, uh, which is like as high of an honor as a PGA professional can have. He's going to represent the United States in a competition uh, just at the end of this month. So go, John. Yay. Um, but you would expect that, and you wouldn't be offended that a tour pro would give you uh, suggestions. Well, G- Jesus is like the PGA tour pro of life. Uh, he is the master of living. He's the one who, um, who came, who lived well, lived 
fully and lived in an accessible way that actually has the potential to change our lives. And uh, so we, we shouldn't, you know, we shouldn't resist what he has to say to us. But if you read the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, 6, or 7, all three together, uh, if you read the Sermon on the Mount, there's just stuff that would be like sandpaper. It would rub us the wrong way. And uh, actually, that's where the growth, that's where the transformation, that's where the the change is. And um, uh, last week, Adam cheated because the uh, name of the series is Four Things I Wish Jesus Hadn't Said. And um, uh, he cheated because he picked all of the Beatitudes and said, I wish Jesus hadn't said any of them, right? You know, blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the meek, they'll inherit the earth. And uh, where he was going with that was that he, uh, he Adam, a strong, competitive, really capable, able person. We like to think that that's the way the world works, that we earn what we get, we get what we earn, and that life is like that. Um, But what Jesus uh, was talking about was not that the Beatitudes uh, were a list of how to get into the club, but a description of those whom God will not leave out. And uh, aren't you glad? Aren't you glad? Um, uh, There is room in the kingdom of heaven for strong, capable, able, hardworking, intelligent, insightful people. But the good news is even better than we've been told because Jesus also will not leave out uh, the meek and the lowly and those who are in mourning. Uh, All of those things, Jesus doesn't leave those people out. Uh, So that was essentially the gist of uh, his message uh, last week. And uh, so this week I want to take... Uh, the rest of Matthew chapter 5. Remember, the Sermon on the Mount is chapters 5, 6, and 7. And so I want to take the rest of Matthew chapter 5, and uh, uh, I want to cover uh, in particular two areas. I'm really on my way to somewhere else, but this gave me so much pause uh, that I just felt like the Holy Spirit was highlighting it. So in Matthew 5, verses 17 through 19, Jesus says this. He says, "'Don't think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets.'" I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And you'll notice I kind of put that in italics. That's a hint of what it, one of the things I want to talk about. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of the pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. So he's not talking about that you won't go to heaven, but he is saying that the law is so important that it actually affects your place in God's kingdom. And whoever practices and teaches these commands uh, will be called great uh, in the kingdom of heaven. Um, So this is uh, right after the Beatitudes, and he's talking about um, fulfilling the law. And that phrase just kept ringing in my ears all week as I, as I prayed and thought about this. And um, so first of all, you know, what's the law? Fulfilling the law. Now, in Jesus' terminology, uh, the law was what Moses delivered to the people of Israel. They went from being a group of slaves. They had been enslaved longer than Americans, uh, African-Americans uh, experienced uh, slavery in the U.S. The people of Israel 
I'd been enslaved for 400 years. And then through God's miraculous intervention, they made a transition from a slave group of people where all the family structures and all of the social structures had been broken down due to oppression to becoming a family and a people of God. And Moses was the one who both led them out of oppression and slavery. uh, And as well, he gave them the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Uh, and, and of course, this passage talks about the law and the prophets. And so the prophets were like God's uh, spokespeople who were providing commentary upon the law, right? So if one way to think about uh, one way to think about it is that Moses gave us this order for society in those five books of the Bible. And then the prophets came along and gave us commentary about those. Um, and then there's actually one other section of the Old Testament called the writings. And that would be the Psalms and the Proverbs and Song of Solomon and uh, Job. And it's those, they're kind of like the soundtrack. That's the music for all of the, all of the story of God's people. But Jesus says, don't think that I've come to abolish those things. I've not come to abolish them but to fulfill them. And so, like I said, I, I, was, I was concerned uh, really with this phrase, fulfill. And by the way, I can already feel the, like the room getting like serious, right? And one of the ushers, just during the three-minute break as I was headed up, one of the ushers who was here for the first service says, go get him, P. Ray, and by the way, we need more jokes in the second service. So I'm working on that, okay? We don't have to be like super serious, right? Jesus helped me with the jokes, right? Um, so um, uh, I, I wondered about what fulfill means. And, and by the way, the word fulfill contains in itself a hint of a promise, right? If, if the law needs to be fulfilled, there's, there's a promise there. What's on the other side of the fulfillment of the law? And the challenge that the people in Jesus' day had and the challenge that we have is that we think that sometimes fulfilling the law means compliance with the law. But there's a huge difference between complying with the law and living into the heart of the law. Does that make sense? There's a huge difference between complying with the law and understanding or living our lives or structuring our lives with respect to the heart of the law. So I'm going to tell you a true story about compliance with the law, okay? I had a friend in high school. uh, We took driver's ed. I think they still teach, because this was a long time ago. They just invented the automobile. Um, But I think they still teach driver's ed, don't they? Right, And so when I was in driver's ed, they they taught us that when you come to one of those eight-sided red signs, uh, that you need to come to a complete stop. And that you need to even like feel the car kind of just rock back so that you know, I'm getting amens on a stop sign. Sandy, you can come with me wherever you want. Okay. So, you know, it was like, it was like, okay, this is what a stop sign is all about. Well, I had a friend who, who during driver's ed said, you know what they don't tell you is they don't tell you where you have to stop. And my friend was supposing, well, what if there was a car in front of you at the red stop sign and they stopped and then you came up behind them and you stopped too. Haven't you come to a complete stop so that when the car in front of you goes ahead, well, you can go ahead too because you came to a complete stop, right? He said, I, I complied with the law. I came to a complete stop and then on I went. Now, I will give you three guesses. The first two don't count. What occupation do you think my friend in high school ended up becoming? A lawyer. 
He became a lawyer because he was dealing with compliance of the law. My car was moving. I came to a stop. You didn't exactly say how far back from the stop sign I had to stop. And then I'm able to go because I stopped once. I did the job. And, you know, I I haven't been in touch with him much during those 40 years. I don't know if he ever had a conversation with a police officer about whether or not that was uh, compliance. Um, But that's one way to fulfill the law is just to comply with the regulations of the law. And in fact, anyone in the business world will tell you that there's something called malicious compliance. And that's where the boss says, do this, but we hate the boss. So we do exactly this and we do only this, right? And so you've seen the memes like on on Facebook where there's, you know, they're, they're doing the, you know, the yellow line that is the very side of the road and they're painting the yellow line, but then there's like a dead raccoon or something. And so they paint like right over top of the dead raccoon and on it goes and it says, you know, epic fail. And what's the deal is that my job is not moving the dead raccoon. My job is to paint the line and I complied with what my job was. Somebody else's job is to move the dead raccoon, the sanitation department. Um, And uh, that one's a funny example, but some of us have worked in environments where people will comply with the job description, but it's malicious compliance. And all we're going to do is that. I don't like the man. I don't like working for the man. And I'm only going to do what the man told me I had to do. Now the man's got to pay me because I did my job, right? Is that really a good work environment? Is that what you'd call like a a life-giving work environment? Do you feel like your work has significance, meaning, vision, calling, that you're making a difference in people's lives? And of course, the answer is no to any of that. So there's a difference between compliance with the law and fulfillment of the law, right? And in fact, compliance of the law is the kingdom of men and fulfillment of the law is the kingdom of God. Do, you, do we see that? And, and so many people, both in Jesus' day, we called them scribes and Pharisees, so many people in Jesus' day just wanted to do fulfillment, or I mean, compliance with the law. So on the Sabbath day, don't do any work. And they would have these long debates about, well, what is work? And someone would say, well, if you walk too far, that that's work, so you can only walk so far. And they were only concerned with compliance of the law. And, and the, the, the heart of what God was trying to do in constituting a healthy community was like lost on those people. You, you with me on that? So the difference between compliance is that's the kingdom of men and fulfillment. That's where God's kingdom is. God's kingdom, we learn in Romans chapter 14, is where there is right relationships, peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Romans fourteen seventeen. God's kingdom is where there are right relationships, peace and joy, all wrapped up in a dynamic relationship with the Holy Spirit, Right? And wouldn't you much prefer to live in a community like that? Wouldn't you much prefer to work in an environment like that where there are right relationships, peace, joy, and fulfillment in the Holy Spirit? Um, I've I've been church broken for a long time. I met the Lord a long time ago. I've been in a lot of churches. I understand that one of the ways that we interpret this, I've not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law, is that Jesus ran the race, did the task, and he got an A, right? Jesus, the perfect, sinless son of God, lived a life that was without flaw, without blemish, without sin. And so Jesus fulfilled the law, 
right? He said, I didn't come to abolish it. I came to fulfill it. And uh, one of the, uh, the shortcuts that we take then as Christians is, well, Jesus fulfilled the law. Thank goodness I don't have to. Now, isn't that a convenient interpretation that basically says, Jesus paid attention to the Old Testament, so I don't have to. You know, but newsflash, did you know that the Old Testament is part of the Bible? Did, did you, I mean, this is really deep theology, right? In fact, get a load of this. The Old Testament is the Bible that Jesus read. He didn't have a New Testament. Jesus just read the Old Testament. And in fact, here's one way to look at it, is that the Old Testament, the Bible that Jesus read, actually helped shape Jesus spiritually. Now, there were other influences, the presence of the Holy Spirit, his father, his mother, his community of faith. Um, um, All of those things helped shape him. But Jesus read the Old Testament, and actually in reading the Old Testament, it informed the person that he became. There's another way of saying this, and that is that the life of Jesus expresses the perfect fulfillment of the Old Testament. That the life of Jesus is our example, mine and yours. The life of Jesus is an example of how we should engage the Old Testament. And here he is saying, look, you know, hey, it still counts. It's still important. Not because of compliance, not because God is some great accountant in the sky, meaning no offense to accountants in the audience, who is simply putting check marks on some spreadsheet. You know, today Tyler was good, yesterday Tyler was bad, he's shooting 50%, right? Not like that, but that the life of Jesus becomes our lens through which we understand the Old Testament. And here in the greatest sermon ever preached by Jesus, he says, this thing is so important that anyone who ignores the slightest stroke, the the I that's dotted, the T that's crossed, if you ignore the, the slightest bit of the Old Testament, we do so at our own personal peril. And those of us who will both receive the Old Testament and help other people to be able to embrace the Old Testament, that's where it says practices and teaches the commands, then you'll be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So this is the promise that the law has for us. It, the, the, the law, meaning the Old Testament, has, has the promise. That's going to go off 12 times. Sorry. It means it's noon. There we go. I'm really glad my mom didn't call because I have a special ringtone just for her. Okay. You can ask me later. All right. Um, so uh, so this, this law, there's a truth beyond compliance with the Old Testament. And that truth is, this is an amazing revelation, we can become like Jesus. The quality of life, the peace, the purity, the absolute chill and the ability to navigate life, that is possible for us. And it's one of the reasons I love the scriptures so much. The scriptures are God's gift to us. Jesus doesn't negate the scriptures. Jesus affirms the scriptures. The scriptures are not like, you know, Captain Jack Sparrow says, we're, you know, Pirate's Code is more like guidelines, not like rules, right? No, the, the scriptures are a pathway to life for us. And so that's one of the things that I love. And Jesus said he didn't come to abolish, um, but to uh, fulfill. In fact, one last note on fulfill the law. What if the, what if the law is our guide to processing our hearts in life. 
What, what, if, um, what if the Bible that, that Jesus read can also help shape us spiritually, right? So it's not that the Old Testament is negated and that the New Testament is more important. It's actually all one house, Old and New Testament. One of my friends in another state that I texted with this week said, you know what? Going from the Old Testament to the New Testament isn't leaving anything at all. It's like moving from one room of the house into another room of the house. Going from the Old Testament is like going from the nursery and the New Testament's like going into the living room, right? They're, um, they're all one house, okay? So um, this is what Jesus says in 17 through 19 of chapter five. And then he starts in on this pattern. And perhaps you're familiar with this if you read it. By the way, did anyone do the homework Pastor Adam gave? Who here read the Sermon on the Mount in the past week? Good for you. Good for you. Anybody else? Okay, so that's great. Uh, Three people out of 150. Well done. Yeah, we're crushing it, right? Um, But if you read it, you know that there's this pattern in the second half of chapter five where Jesus says, well, you've heard it said you should not murder, but I tell you, don't even get angry. You've heard it said that you shouldn't commit adultery, but I'm saying you shouldn't even look lustfully on another individual. And then that pattern is repeated six times right? In the rest of Matthew chapter 5. So now the introduction of the message is over, and I would like to go through all six of these in great detail for the next six hours so that we can fully understand. Why are you laughing? No, I'm not going to do that. I promise I'm not going to do that. But this is a rhythm and a pattern. And part of the great genius of the way that Jesus taught is that he would establish a rhythm and a pattern And yes, he cares about murder. He cares about adultery, divorce, oaths, revenge. He cares about all of those as individual topics, but he also cares about how we approach God's instruction in our life. So there's a meta message, and then there are the specific messages, right? And the meta message was always this. You've heard it said, don't murder. But I tell you, it's really about anger in your heart, right? You've heard it said, don't commit adultery. And I'm really telling you it's about lust that objectifies uh, the objects of your desire, right? And in fact, the heart is, is actually what steers and guides our compliance. Is it possible for us to be angry at our neighbor and still yet not murder them? The answer is, well, yes, and aren't you glad, right? But Jesus says to us, essentially, are you really experiencing right relationships, peace, and joy if we live with anger in our hearts towards our neighbors? Or are we just constantly trying not to murder them? Right? So there was this uh, missionary, he's deceased now, E. Stanley Jones, great Methodist missionary, and he uh, did most of his work in India. And India was part of that uh, British... Uh, imperial colonization thing where the privileged white European people were living in Asia among people of color, but the privileged white Asian or uh, European people had all the money. So so here's this missionary and he's with um, a British family living in India. And this woman says, you know what? I, I, She's trying to be good because the missionary is visiting. I really shouldn't be angry at my servants. Sometimes I get so angry, I slam the door in their faces. I should stop doing that. And E. Stanley Jones said, wouldn't you like to be kind, become the kind of person 
who doesn't get so angry that you would want to slam the door in the face of anyone. And later, a month or two later, she writes him a letter and says, I'm happy to report that not only have I not only, I've not slammed the door in the face of a servant in a month, I have not wanted to slam the door in the face of a servant in the last month. Which kind of life is better? Trying to control yourself so you don't slam the door or becoming the kind of person that feels no need to slam the door? The answer is the second one, by the way, right? Okay, so Jesus talks about all six of these. All six of these have to do with our heart desire. Um, And I know I'm not going to talk about all six. I just want to talk about the last one where Jesus says, you've heard it said, love your neighbor, but hate your enemies. Um, That actually doesn't, uh, well, love your neighbor comes from Leviticus. Um, But the hate your enemies part was an addition that the Qumran community, a super, super, super religious sect alive during Jesus's day, did These are the people who made the fortress in Masada. They wanted to live apart from the Romans and even apart from the other Jewish people because they weren't holy enough. And so Jesus is addressing here about love of neighbor and the fact that, well, you know, you should love your neighbor and you should hate your enemies, right? So I, I want to I talk about that. Um, let's see. Looking down at my notes, I have one more sentence I want to deliver. That's really important. Can I just say this about malicious compliance? Last thing, then I'll move on. Many of us have become so skilled at, act, at acting how we are supposed to act, right? That we can act the way we're supposed to act even if we don't feel that way. That's kind of like a passive aggressive purgatory. Who wants to live in that all of your life? You know the right way to act, so you're determined to act the right way, but on the inside you feel differently. And so forever, it's this passive-aggressive purgatory. All right, so Jesus talks about um, loving your enemies. And this is the one thing, based on our um, uh, uh, series, this is the thing I wish Jesus hadn't said, is why did he have to say this? I'm not only supposed to love my neighbor, which is tough enough, but I'm supposed to love my enemies? You know, it's like, well, no thanks, right? Um, So then I started thinking this week beyond fulfillment of the law, like, well, who are my enemies? That's a good question. Not, Not who are Ray's enemies. Who are my enemies, right? Who are my enemies? And so I started to come up with some answers. And uh, here's the first answer. My enemy is Brian Deavy. You don't know him. I went to high school with him from 1969 to 1973. He's my enemy. Brian, I I mean, my face just gets contorted even when I say his name. You see, Brian was good looking, super smart, he was a great athlete. He was the, the point guard on our basketball team. And he was the president of the freshman class. I just didn't like that guy at all, right? And then what I did was I ran for president of our sophomore class. And I won. And I beat him. <laughs> I loved it. I felt so good. I felt so affirmed. I knew God loved me. I'm the president of the sophomore class. And then Brian ran again for president of the junior class, and he won. And in fact, I can, I mean, you you think I'm joking. I'm not. I can call it up in my mind, the setting, the visual, and the tone of voice when he made the campaign speech, and he said, 
This year's, meaning the sophomores, this year's class board has done nothing. I was the president. And I went, I wanted to jump up. I wanted like, that's not true. That's not true. And I knew right then, he went from being a guy I didn't like, he went to being my enemy. Right? And for the last 43 years, Brian Devey has been my enemy. I've only seen him once since I graduated from high school. (laughs) Right? I was at my 30th high school reunion. I went up to him, you know, and it was like, hello, Newman. (laughs) No, no, I didn't say that. I said, hello, Brian. And, you know, I said, how are you? And, you know, he started to tell me, how is he? Well, he lives in Denver. He had started a company that did very, very well, and he was a multimillionaire. And in fact, he was a philanthropist who was able to give lots and lots of money, even to like my friend who was feeding orphans in, Ke- not orphans, school children in Kenya. And, and my, this guy, my nemesis, Brian Devey, had even given $10,000 just to, to, to build a computer lab for a school in Kenya. And I thought, well, crap, my 20 bucks a month is nothing compared to that, Right? Brian, he did that just to make me mad. He did that because he knew it would make me look bad. He's my nemesis. I don't like Brian Deavy, right? He probably, you know, he's probably on the internet. I don't think he'll listen to this message. But Brian, if you are listening, I have a ministry called Students of Jesus. And if you're a philanthropist, I'll take 10 grand too, please. Thank you very much. All right. Now, well, here's the deal, okay? It's silly, it's foolish, and, and the, but the truth was is that for many years, not only my junior year in high school, but my senior year and all through... By the way, Brian graduated top of the class, Ivy League, now multimillionaire and a philanthropist, right? I've only seen him once. But in my mind, he was freeze-framed as this guy who was my enemy. So... Who, who is my enemy? I'll give you the first one. There are people in our lives that are freeze-framed from the past. And maybe we've only seen them one time in 40 years, but they're freeze-framed, you know? And so you end up sitting on the porch, as we do in, you know, beautiful backwoods, rural, you know, Kentucky, and we talk about people, and then you're like really amazed when, you know, the 79-year-old person on the other end of the porch says, Oh, I know her. I remember her from high school and then begins to tell you exactly what kind of person that she was in 1960. And you go, geez, get a grip. You know, maybe life happened to the person beyond 1960. Maybe, right? There was another kid that I went to high school with who was, boy, if I didn't like the, the point guard on the basketball team, I was super intimidated by football players. I like your husband. Okay, um, her, her husband's football coach. But they superintended. There was a guy who was like, I was like downright afraid of him and I certainly didn't like him. And then I found out when he went away to college, he became a Christian. And, and it was like my you know, mind blown. What? God cared about that person, shared the gospel with that person. That person became a Christian. And you know, I like him though, because he sent me a really nice email after our 20th high school reunion saying, you know, I've, I've listened to your preaching on the internet and I've really been blessed by it. And it was like, okay, well, he can be my friend. <laughs> right? Yeah. So we freeze frame some people and we think that's just exactly the way they were or are. 
They were that way in 1979. They were that way in 1989. You take your pick. They were that way in 2004, and that's who he or she is. Okay? Now, wasn't that fun? Isn't that safe? And doesn't that allow us to just give ourselves a pass? Because if I define my enemies as only people that are freeze-framed from the distant past, then I have almost no responsibility at all to the words of Jesus now to love my enemies. So then I thought, okay, well, who are, who's my enemy? And I began to think, well, you know, like ISIS. Oh, yeah, they're bad guys. And, and Iran, yeah, they're bad guys. And Russia, ooh, those Russians, Right? But isn't it interesting, again, that if I define these types of either social groups, religious groups, political groups, or or ethnic national groups, if I define them as my enemy, once again, you know, I'm like free to go ahead and live my life tomorrow any way I want. I just think the odds are really, really, really small that I'm going to run into ISIS at Hardin Coffee tomorrow. Right? So if I define... my enemy as a religious or a social or an ethnic group that's on the other side of the world, then I'm free from having to wrestle with these things that I wish Jesus hadn't said. So who is my enemy? And that's where, at this point, because I've been working on this in my mind and I'm thinking about this as much as I can, um, I come out of the office, which is in my home, and uh, lean up against the kitchen counter, and I say to my wife, Kimberly, who's in the back, my lovely assistant, there you are, and I said, hey, do I have any enemies? Who are, who's my enemy? And you see, the, the difference between Kim and me is I am the idealist who lives with his head in the clouds and is rarely practical, and my wife is the pragmatist who actually keeps our family together right? You know, make sure that things like bills get paid and stuff like that, right? So when I ask her, who is my enemy? She begins to say, well, there's so-and-so and and there's so-and-so and and then there's always this and there's this. And I go, well, I'm not mad at them. And she goes, yeah, but you know, they're they're not so happy with you, (laughs) right? This is a little tougher because everybody that she mentioned lives in Taylor County, (laughs) And they're alive now, not in 1970, 71, or when I graduated in 73, right? And um, first of all, I have a hard time with my own emotions. I, I, I look at people and go, I'm not mad. When inside, right, how am I, how's a Christian supposed to act? I'm not mad, but inside, I'm mad, right? So there I am in that passive-aggressive purgatory. And now my wife is saying, you know, like, well, what about so-and-so or so-and-so and so-and-so? And I go, well, I'm not mad at them. And then all of a sudden, as, as she and I are processing this together, and so, so helpful, I begin to realize that one of the things Jesus says is, if you are at the temple and you are bringing your offering before God and you remember that your brother has something against you, do you know this passage? What are you supposed to do? Stop what you're doing, leave your offering at the temple and go and reconcile with your brother or, or your sister. And notice the way Jesus constructed that. If you remember that your brother has something against you. And in fact, in between services, uh, an individual came up to me and said, yeah, I'm, I'm really having trouble with what you said because the neighbors who live, they adjoin our backyard, uh, they, they fit the definition of an enemy. 
And that is that they're angry at us. And, it's, and, and this individual said, can't even let our kids play in the backyard because we feel the hate stares coming out of the window, right? Now, here's why this particularly resonated with me is that Kim and I had an enemy like that one time. All right, so um, we live, we got married in Texas. We were married five years in Texas, married five years. We're still married. Uh, five years in Washington, D.C., right? Five years. And when we lived in Washington, D.C., we lived in these townhouses. they called row houses, you know, where, you know, it's just house, 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 little postage stamp in the front and back, and you share a common wall. And our neighbor, literally our neighbor in Washington, who we shared a common wall with, was our enemy. True story. Now, she was 70-plus years old. She had white hair. She was feeble. Her voice wasn't really all that strong, but it could be strong when it needed to be. But she was our enemy because she hated us. I'm not making this stuff up, okay? These are not the jokes that Usher told me to work on, all right? When Kim and uh, Katie wasn't born yet, but Joe and and Evangeline were, were little, little children, when Kim and Katie would leave our front door and go down the steps of the townhouse to get into the car, the neighbor would scream out the window, I hope you die in a crash. It's a true story. And you're like, your kids are like kindergarten and preschool, Right? Or my son, uh, kindergarten, he's having a birthday party and the you know backyard is it's not Taylor County backyards. It's Washington, D.C., postage stamp. And they're playing with like a soccer ball that we'd gotten my son. And the ball rolls from our backyard into this lady's backyard. No fences. These are townhouses. And she screams from out of the back window. I'm, I'm working with how real I need to be with this. She uses an expletive, the grandmother, the, the queen mother of all expletives. You know, get your blanking ball off of my yard. And it's my kindergarten age son who's having a birthday party with his friends. So we're cursed at in the backyard. We're, you know, I hope you're in a crash. And so uh, because we were deeply uh, religious followers of Jesus, uh, I took the words of Jesus to heart and I called the police. and the police came and they actually heard her go off on us because I told the police why don't you stand out of sight and I'll just walk past her townhouse and it's like a Hitchcock movie she was always in some window or another right (laughs) so she you know so I walk by and the police are like in the bushes and she's going I hate you so much you know it's like and it's cursing and you know all that and the police say well what you really need to do is call social services so our first act towards our enemy was we called the police our second towards our enemy was we called social services. Now, a word to your mother. When you call social services, they respond to you and their default position is you're the problem because you're the one who made the call. So now social services is sitting in my house telling me, so tell me, why do you think you have a problem with your neighbor? And I'm going, OMG, they think I'm the problem, (laughs) right? And so we had one of those little Fisher Price. This is a long time ago. My son is 30 now. Uh, Fisher Price cassette tape recorders. I said, son, go get your tape recorder. And we had taped her. And it was fun to watch social services mouth go. When they heard this, this imprecations that came out of this woman. And they said, well, maybe we should go visit her. And I go, do you think? <laughs> right? And so they, they called me back a couple of days later, social services, and said, well, her complaint against you is that she believes that that common wall you have in the uh, 
townhouse that you have drilled holes between your home and her home and you are pumping human excrement from your house into her house. We weren't doing that. (laughs) Right? We really weren't. But she really believed this. So, you know, dementia, much, right? And at that point, I begin to think, oh my gosh, this poor woman, right? Now, she's making our life and lives of our children really difficult. But I also realize this poor woman. And so finally, at that point, Ray's called the police. Ray's called social services. And my wife says, maybe we ought to pray for her, (laughs) right? And this, by the way, is the solution that Jesus recommends for loving our enemies. He says, you've heard it said, this is starting now in verse uh, 40-something, 43. Uh, You've heard it said, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. But I tell you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. I got it right the third time. So cut me some slack. Yeah. Um, that you may be children of your father in heaven. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good. Look how sweet God is. And he sends the rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. It was an agrarian society. The rain was a blessing, right? And if you love those who love you, well, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, well, they're Machian, right? If you greet only your own people, uh, what are you doing more than others? Don't even pagans do that, right? Well, it took us, took me three tries to get it right. And amazing things began to happen. Um, The woman's family that was uh, far away, uh, began to get involved in her life. Uh, the woman was actually married to, you know, this guy who was in his 70s. We saw at one time where the older man who couldn't walk well, uh, plastic grocery bags that broke and canned goods spilled out on the steps and the woman would pick up the, hand, the, the canned goods and throw them at her husband because the bag broke, right? And so the family began to get involved and, and to to try to take care of this woman. On the other side of this woman were neighbors that we had never met, but I I heard my neighbor from the other side who was also having problems with a woman saying, it couldn't have been my wife that was doing those things to your house because my wife is in the hospital in her strict bed rest in a, in a crisis pregnancy. You know, you know, she was like 30 weeks along and like not just bed rest, but in the hospital. So I wrote that guy a note and said, I heard that your wife was in the hospital. And uh, is there anything we can do around here to help you? And he knocks on my door two days later. I'd never met him. And he said, I took your note and I read it to my wife in the hospital. And she began to cry because all of our people, this was Washington, D.C., all of our people live in New York and we don't have anybody here. And that you would even offer to do anything was just the nicest thing anybody's ever done for us. And I said, well, my wife and my two adorable kids, I have three adorable ones now, uh, my two adorable kids, we could come and visit your wife at the hospital to, like, you know, cheer her up. And so we went and we visited her in the hospital. And then all of us prayed for the woman that lived in between us. And we ended up striking up a friendship with that family that was on the other side, They had faith in their roots, but their faith wasn't active. They returned to their Methodist roots and began a new revitalized relationship with Jesus. We began to pray for the neighbor. The neighbor got help, and best news of all, the neighbor was moved out. (laughs) Right? And it got even better because the people who moved in 
were from India. This is Washington, D.C., very international community. The people who moved in were from India, and they were Christians, and we ended up with our own little community fellowship group. It was so wonderful. Well, so after calling the police, after calling social services, when it occurred to us maybe that we should pray for our enemies and the people who persecuted us, things began to change. Now, I can rail against Brian Devey. I can rail against ISIS or the Ruskies all I want, right? But the real question that is the heart question for me and for you is who's my enemy? You know, the lawyer, no disrespect, we've got a couple lawyers in the congregation. The lawyer one time even asked Jesus, well, who is my neighbor? Here's a really useful question. Who is my enemy? Who is my enemy? Is it somebody safely tucked in the past? And you might need to do some heart work on that. Is it people, ethnic nationalities, ethnic groups, or religious groups that are halfway across the world? You'll never run into them when you're on Main Street in Campbellsville. Or Jesus, would you help me? Who's my enemy here? Because it might be the person that you share the backyard with. Um, I'm going to tell you a true story about a guy that still lives in Campbellsville who I know, and his neighbor's cat kept bothering his pets. And so to solve the problem, he shot the neighbor's cat dead. And I was so proud in the years I was pastoring at the vineyard that this guy went to our church (laughs) It's like, good. So here at the vineyard, we're producing the kind of people that when they can't get along with their neighbors, they shoot the neighbor's cat. Yeah, okay. You know what? It bothered him. What can I say? So who's my neighbor? I, I can tuck them away safely in the past or on the other side of the world, or I can, uh, who's my enemy? Or I can ask Jesus, who is it? that I'm supposed to love actively here? Who is it for whom I'm supposed to pray? Who is it for whom I, and Jesus is giving us not only the heart solution, but practical solutions. Uh, you, You ever notice in your prayers, presuming you pray like I do, that I can ask for justice for other people and in the same prayer ask for grace and mercy for me? You ever done that? Like at the beginning of my prayer time is where I offload all my problems. Jesus, I hate my boss. Stick it to him. He's a mean son of a gun. He needs what's coming. Sick him, God. And by the time I'm finishing up my prayers, it's, would you be so nice to me, my wife, my children? Would you bless us, provide for us, give us food to eat? How is it that we can ask for justice against our enemies and and in the same prayers ask for grace and mercy for ourselves? Jesus actually speaks to this too. He says, the measure that you use for others, do you know the rest of this? Maybe it's Adam's next week of things I wish Jesus had. The same measure you use for others will be measured out to you. Jesus, chill, man. (laughs) Cut it, cut it out. Right? So I've done those very things. But Jesus says that the answer is to pray for those who persecute you. And listen to this wonderful, wonderful promise. He says that you might be children of your Father in heaven. One evidence that we are followers of Jesus, 
One evidence that we indeed are born from above is that we would have the capacity to pray for our enemies. Do we want proof of our faith? Well, and and depending on your translation, he actually says, pray for those who persecute that you might prove yourselves to be children of your father in heaven. You see, worldly people will never pray for blessings on their enemies. It takes a spiritual rebirth. It takes spiritual formation. It takes the identity of the Holy Spirit and the work of the Holy Spirit in us to empower us to be able to pray for our enemies. One evidence that we are heaven's children is our ability to pray for those who persecute us. Yeah? Good? Not too heavy? The good news is is that Jesus is after our hearts. He knows that if our hearts are right, our compliance will follow. Where our compliance doesn't follow or where our compliance is malicious, there's grace and mercy and forgiveness from the very one who hung on the cross. And what was his prayer on the cross? Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. In fact, the apostle Paul reflects on that in Romans chapter five. And he says this, at the very right time, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And then two verses later, he says, while we were God's enemies, he was busy sacrificing for us. Do you notice God doesn't have enemies. We just find ourselves to be enemies of God. Here's how God treats his enemies, which is a misnomer because they're not his. It's, it's us that are alienated from him. Here's how God treats his enemies. Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. In fact, the apostle Paul goes this far. You know, maybe you could imagine that you might possibly die for a good person, but God proves his love and mercy for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You might possibly die for a good man or woman, but who in their right mind would die for their enemies? And the answer is the person who is in his rightest mind ever in the history of the human race. Does that make sense? And that we have an invitation today. We have an invitation to be like our master. And being like our master is not some pipe dream, like, well, I'll never stop being angry. No, I'll never stop being lustful. No, I'll never stop adding to my oaths with extra promises. No, I'll, you know, I'll never be able to deal with the cycle of revenge in my life. We have an invitation that the Holy Spirit could actually empower us to be like our master. And then he even gives us a first step. Aren't you glad Jesus is so practical? Pray for those who persecute you. Prove yourselves to be heaven's children. Are you glad? Do you still wish he hadn't said it? It's still just as challenging. When you go home today, it's still just as challenging. So if we have a ministry team that is assigned for today, do we have those people? You should jump up. You should come running on down. Okay. And I know that Pastor Adam does it this way at the end of a message. He always says, let's all stand up. But this time, can we all just sit back? Because I'm going to ask the Holy Spirit to come and give us some homework. Oh, I do like the way Adam says this. Oh, you guys have got, you have some good people to pray for you today. 
And you do. You have good people, right? If you have any need, maybe you came in and there's an illness in your body. Maybe you're facing a financial difficulty. Maybe you're struggling with absolute deep grief about something. These people are here and others as well to pray with you and for you. But I would like us together while we're seated to just ask the Holy Spirit to speak to us. So you ready? Sit back, relax. You can close your eyes if you want, but you don't have to. Holy Spirit of God. Spirit, first of all, we thank you that you inspired the words of the scripture. Spirit of God, thank you that what Jesus said was actually heard and captured and reliably delivered to us. Thank you for the Old Testament that formed our master. Thank you for those things. And because you're faithful, Spirit of God, I ask that you would answer this prayer. Would you show me who is my enemy? Would you reveal to me not a convenient enemy, but a close-by enemy? And I ask, Spirit, not only that you would reveal this, but then that you would empower me to be heaven's son, heaven's daughter, and to be the kind of person who can pray for my enemies. And indeed, to go beyond that, somehow, through some great transformation, would you enable me to be the kind of person who could love my enemies? Now, I know that God answers this prayer. He's put a person on your mind or your heart. Consider this a divine assignment. Jesus is giving us the opportunity to be heaven's children. Thanks, Lord, for the opportunity. In your name we pray. Amen. Friends, the Mass has ended. Go in peace. May God be with you. Thank you again for stopping by the podcast at the Vineyard Church in Campbellsville, Kentucky. If you'd like to keep up with what's happening here at the Vineyard, you can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Until next time, peace to you.